Yeah, so last week we were in chapter 19, and we took a break from Abraham. We were with Lot. We were furthering that story. We were catching up with him. We didn't really have an interaction with Abraham. We heard a little bit about him, but we didn't talk about him. So last time we saw Abraham was when he was back in Mamre, just after he'd finished interceding for the righteous of Sodom. Um, at the end of that passage in chapter 18, uh, we saw that it said um, in 1833, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking with Abraham to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Well, in this chapter, we're going to see that Abraham continued to act in a pattern of sin that he hadn't dealt with from previous years. Um, this chapter is very similar to what we saw in the second half of Genesis chapter 12, where he went to Egypt. I'll refer to that multiple times. And we will see that although he is God's man, he is sinful. We'll see that although he is God's chosen man to have a people from him, he doesn't always act in that manner. He doesn't always act in a righteous way. Um, but just before we get into that passage, I will just pray quickly and then we can get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. Lord, I thank you for Abraham. I thank you that he is such an example for us, Lord, that he is not only your righteous man of faith, Lord, but that he is also a sinful human being and that we can take heart in that you chose this man to be yours, Lord. Lord, I pray that as I speak now that, yeah, although it would be me speaking, Lord, that they wouldn't see me, but that they would see you and hear you, Lord. As John the Baptist says, Lord, make me less so that you can become more. Lord, I pray that, that as we finish today at the end, Lord, that we'd be able to leave and be able to continue thinking about these things, Lord. We would be like the Bereans that search the scriptures every day to see if they are true. Lord, I pray that that, that would be us, Lord. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. We can see that he had returned from talking with the Lord back to his camp at the Oaks of Mamre. And then as he'd seen the smoke rising from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he decides that it's time to pack up his camp and move. He decides that it's time to get out of this place for now. And then we begin to see these events unfold that are very, very reminiscent to when he first interacted with God back in Genesis 12. Um, although here they remain in what would become the land of Israel, they remained in the promised land, they did still move to a place and this area was still ruled by many kings. These kings ruled over smaller areas of land and cities. As we see Abraham move, we see that he's moving away from the place that he lived for the better part of two decades. It's been 25 years since they first came into this land. They stopped the Oaks of Memory in Genesis 13 and we haven't heard of them moving since. So they spent two decades in this one place and now all of a sudden it's time to up and move. It's time to pack up the tents, pack up the donkeys and the camels, move to this new place. And in this first verse, we are given a few different geographical markers. Four places are mentioned. The first place is the Negev. This was a wilderness in the south of Israel, the south of the land. It wasn't green, it wasn't lush, there was nothing there. It was a wilderness. But it's in the south, and so they're heading from 
from Mamre, Bethel, in the centre of the country, down towards the south of the land. We're also given these two, two other places, Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh was a village where they were near, and then Shur was the wilderness in between Egypt and Israel. And then finally we get the place that he lived, Gerah. This was one of those cities that was ruled by one of these smaller kings. Back in Genesis 12, we saw his family move down to Egypt and it used similar language. Genesis 12:10 says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. They go to sojourn. Sojourn means temporarily. They didn't mean to live there permanently. This wasn't a, this is where we're going to live for the rest of our lives. This is, we're going here to live temporarily. Let's go to verse 2. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Bimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We were just beginning to draw comparisons there between Abraham and his family in Egypt. Well, now it feels very similar to that. They enter into this new area and the ruler, I'm like, Abraham says, my wife is my sister. She goes, this is Sarah, she's my sister. And then the king, or the ruler of the area, sends and takes her away. Decides that it's, it's, she is of value, and so is a, a payment. Now it's unclear in this text of who Abraham is speaking to when he says, um, she is my sister. It was just a general to whoever he approached, it's, this is my sister. We saw in Egypt that when he said this, he was speaking to basically everyone, to the guards and to the, the people. But I think that it also shows that there was probably the same sort of conversation happening here as there was in Egypt. In Egypt, we saw he said, do me this thing. And we'll see this later as well. And although it had been almost 25 years since they were in Egypt, although he'd had significant encounters with God, although he had had um, time to be justified, we saw that in Genesis 15, we saw that he had faith in God and God counted that to him as righteousness. Abraham still acts in a faithless manner toward God sometimes. He is still a sinful human being who tries to protect himself before trusting in God to do so. And honestly, I think that what Abraham does here shouldn't surprise us. I think that we tend to put Abraham and others like him up on these pedestals. We lift them up above ourselves and go, look at these great men of faith. People like Jacob and Isaac and David. It's almost like we venerate them as extra holy. But when we read scripture, the exact opposite is what we see. We see that these men were still sinful human beings. Abraham was a sinful human being who doubted God, but despite that, God still comes and offers him the choice. God still comes and says, you have had faith in me, and so you are justified by your righteousness. You are counted righteous by your faith. It is faith. It is grace of God through faith. The example of Abraham is here to show us that God is faithful. It is only through his grace and mercy that anyone can be saved. And through his grace and mercy, sin can be overcome in our lives. But even when there is sin, God is still faithful. God doesn't abandon us. He is there even in the midst of our sin. 
When we sin, we may feel distant from God, but he is always with us. He is always there. He never leaves us. Abraham sinned here by saying that Sarah was his sister. He yet again fails to act in accordance with the truth that God has told him. And he has seen, and we have seen, that over his walk, he has always acted like this. He has acted time and again. He has gone, okay, God, I've got my plan. Thank you for justifying me, but I'm going to try and do my own thing. But he still has faith that God has got his promises. He still has faith that God will fulfill his promises. And we see the consequences of this sin. We see the consequences of him saying that Sarah is his sister. The consequences of that is that the king sends for her. The king says, I'm going to take her now. She's not your wife, so I'm not committing a sin here. I'm going to take her and add her to my household. She's going to be mine. And so he does that. He takes them, he separates that, that family unit. Let's look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So we don't know when Abimelech took Sarah. There's no time marker there. But we see that later, maybe that night, maybe the following night, Abimelech is in bed. Previously, when Sarah had been taken by a ruler, we heard nothing from God until he sent plagues on the house of Pharaoh. We didn't hear anything immediately. We don't know how Pharaoh found out about her being um, his wife. But this time it's different. This time God deems it necessary to come to this pagan king, this heathen, this man who worshipped idols and false gods, to come to him in a dream and pronounce judgment on him for his actions. He says, behold, you are a dead man. This is God. Elohim, the strong one, he says, you are a dead man because you have taken someone's wife. The value that God places on marriage is so high that he tells this king to prepare for death because he has taken someone's wife. You are a dead man. This phrase, I think, is often um, used when someone is being protective. We see it in films all the time. Um, you have this big tough guy saying, if you do whatever, if you take my woman, then you're a dead man. That is a threat to show the protectiveness of the speaker. But here God is not like the tough guys in movies that say it just as a threat and would never carry through on it. He does not say this in the heat of the moment. Here God is protecting Sarah. He is protecting the future nation of Israel. And he is doing so in a completely just and appropriate manner. God is the maker of all. He is the sustainer of all. And so if he says, it is time for you to die, then he is completely just in that. He is not merely saying, you have to do this. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. Let's keep going into verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
he had not approached her. We see here that Abimelech had not yet committed this adultery with Sarah. This phrasing, approached, he had not yet approached her. This phrasing is used throughout the Old Testament and other Hebrew writings to mean um, sleeping together. It forms part of Abimelech's defense was that he hadn't slept with her yet. Because he hadn't slept with her, because although he had taken her and added to his household, he hadn't touched her yet, because of this, he takes it upon himself to give defense before the Lord God Almighty. God has said, you are a dead man because you've taken this man's wife. And then Abimelech says, but I am innocent. But I am innocent. Would you, a just God, kill innocent? Kill innocent people? And so even though he is a sinful pagan man who doesn't know God and doesn't worship God, he, rock, he recognizes that God is still the Lord and Master. He was Adonai, Lord, will you kill the innocent? God, we know, is completely just. Moreover, he cannot be unjust. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 18.25 that Abraham said, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God cannot allow sin, there has to be a price paid. In the instance of Sodom and Gomorrah, that price was total destruction. And that price was paid. But the righteous man of God, Lot, was saved out of that destruction. God did what was just. He destroyed the wicked and saved the righteous. Abimelech here says that he is innocent. He is obviously talking about this one sin. He's only talking about this sin of adultery that he is being accused of because we know that no man is completely innocent. And he goes further in trying to justify his innocence by placing the blame onto Abraham and Sarah. He goes, she said that he was, her, he was her brother. He said that she is my sister. This again shows us that Sarah is complicit in this deception. It's not just Abraham saying something and Sarah keeping quiet. No, Sarah is just as much at fault here as Abraham. Although Abraham was the one that came up with the idea, she went along with it throughout. Continue on, continuing on in his defence, Abimelech then speaks of his heart and his hands, his inward and outward, regarding this matter. He speaks of his inward thoughts and his outward actions. Inwardly, he has had integrity. He has not gone after Sarah in a dishonorable manner. As far as he knew, she was single. She wasn't married. His inward motives are not deceitful or malicious. He did not do anything to her yet, and so he's innocent of this crime. And his actions outwardly match his inward motives. But only with the information that he was given. How could he have known that Abraham was Sarah's husband. How could he have known that she was his wife? They had both told him that they were siblings. He's saying, Lord, I didn't know. How can you, how can you charge me with this sin? I didn't know that it was a sin. We see later in the law that God gives sacrifices. He commands the Israelites to make sacrifices for the sins they did not know. 
Just because you don't know something is a sin doesn't make it not a sin. Let's look at God's response in verse 6. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech is this unrighteous pagan king who was not justified. He was not saved. But God still recognises his relative innocence in this matter. God still recognises that he hasn't touched her. And he knew that Abimelech hadn't acted maliciously. He had not acted with ill intent. And God recognises and even says that he himself stopped Abimelech from sinning. He stopped Abimelech himself. God intervened to stop Abimelech from committing sin with Sarah. And notice here who the sin is perpetrated against. Abimelech would not have sinned against Sarah or sinned against Abraham, but he would have sinned against God and God alone. God, we know, is absolutely holy. We heard last week that he is holy, holy, holy. Any sin, therefore, is against God by the very nature of sin. Sin is unholy. So even if it is directed against someone else, ultimately it is against God. In stopping Abimelech from committing adultery and sinning against God, God then protects the testimony of Sarah. Because God stopped Abimelech, it meant that there was no possible way for anyone to say that Isaac was illegitimate. God has given this promise, there'll be a year until they have the son. There'll be a year until the promise is complete. If this thing had happened, if Abimelech had been allowed to do what he wanted to do, then people would go, is Abraham really Isaac's father? Did God really fulfill that promise through Abraham and Sarah? Or did Sarah, or did Abimelech commit adultery with Sarah and therefore Isaac is his son? But God is greater than that and so he stops it. He nips it in the bud before it even ever happens and prevents it from happening. He knew the integrity of Abimelech's heart. He knew that Abimelech had not acted in a malicious manner. And God also had this plan for Abraham and Sarah that he had had in the making for eternity. He knew that he was going to make the promised seed that, prom that was promised to Adam and Eve come through this man Abraham. That it was going to come through Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and then eventually get to David in Israel. And then from that line, we get Christ. In preventing Abimelech from committing the sin, God is preserving the way for Christ to come into the world. He's preserving the way that Christ can come in the way that he had said. Let's go to verse 7. Now then, return. So this is still God speaking. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. This is still God's response, and he's prevented Abimelech from sinning in this instance, and now gives this command to return Sarah. We see here that he calls Abraham a prophet, 
This is the first time that anyone is called a prophet in the entirety of Scripture. The prophets in the Bible are usually seen as those that proclaim the message that God has given to the people and then pray for the people back to God. They are the intermediaries. They are the intercessors. When we think of prophets, we probably think of one of the prophets of whom we have the books of. We maybe think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Hosea, someone like that. But we don't jump to Abraham as a prophet of God. When you think prophet, you don't go, yes, Abraham, that man who acted faithlessly time and again. Now you think of people like Elijah who cry out to the Lord. But we see that based on the role of a prophet, Abraham fulfills that. The role of the prophet was for God to speak, to take a message to a group of people, and then for that prophet to take a prayer back to God. God has spoken to Abraham multiple times, we've seen, and we've also seen Abraham praying for people. We saw him interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. We say, Lord, don't let the righteous be killed. So Abimelech is told to return Sarah to Abraham to, and to ask Abraham to pray for him, to again act in that role of prophet. This command of God shows his grace. He's giving Abimelech a choice. He can either give Sarah back to Abraham, have him pray for him, and if he does that, then God will spare his life there. But if he doesn't do this, if he decides to disobey, to disregard the command, then not only will Abimelech be killed, all of his, all of his wives, all of his servants and slaves, anyone that is associated with this king will be killed. Bimelech has, dis, has extended this choice. Choose God's way and live, or choose your own way and die. Along with everyone around you. This, I think, is probably the easiest choice that Bimelech ever had to make. And I think that at the same time, it is the choice that we must make in regards to the gospel. When presented with the gospel, there are two options, believe and be saved, or don't and be condemned. When we believe and submit to Christ, then we are dying to our old self. Our sin and all of our flesh that was there, and we are becoming alive in Christ and to Christ. In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're given this option. And when we surrender our lives, when we align ourselves with him and his word, when we choose to do things God's way instead of our own way, we no longer measure the world by our own standards, but by the word of God. We no, longer live, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who saved us. Abimelech is given this choice. And this isn't a believe and save for eternity or don't believe and die. This is a do what I've said and you won't be killed in this instance or don't do what I've said and you will be. Let's look at verse 8 and Abimelech's response. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. So in this whole interaction between God and Abimelech, it has all been in a dream. 
said God came to him in a dream. So now he gets up, he gets out of bed early in the morning and goes to tell his servants about what has happened, what he's been told by God. The entire time God and Abimelech have been speaking, it never mentions that Abimelech was afraid. It never says that he feared God or was afraid. However, when he tells his servants of the things that have happened in the night, I think that it's safe to say that Abimelech probably was afraid. He was afraid at least of dying. He was afraid at least of being killed. And that's why he pled his innocence before God. And the response of the servants is also to be expected. You've just been told that your king has been told he's going to die and all that are with him. He's told you these things. Now you're running around in fear. Am I going to die? Is this going to happen? They've been told to find this one specific woman out of Abimelech's harem, out of his household. She has to be found and given back to her husband, otherwise they will all die. It's a very frightening prospect, I'm sure, and I understand their fear in this moment. We see that this continues on. Let's look at verse 9. Then God called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? In the midst of the fear of these people, remember that God has said that unless Sarah is returned and Abraham prays for them, they will all die. Amid the fear, Abimelech calls Abraham and begins to reprove him. He begins to rebuke him. It seems from an outside perspective that Abimelech here has the moral high ground. Abraham had come into this area, lied about his relationship with his wife, causing the the king to commit a most grievous sin. Abimelech's question then is almost justified. What did you do to us? What have you done to the whole land? Why? It echoes the Pharaoh's response to Abraham in Egypt in Genesis 12. Pharaoh said, what is this you have done to me? He's almost saying, Abraham, how could you have ever thought that this was a good idea? What could you have done? Abimelech says, what have you done to us? And what did we do to you that you did this to us? What is your motivation for it? What did you see? Abimelech, at the heart of it, is asking, why? while at the same time accusing Abraham of doing things that should not be done. And this must have been a humiliating experience for Abraham. Put yourself in his shoes. You go somewhere and in the moment of weakness, you lie about someone or something to the person in charge. They then take something value, that thing va- that's valuable to you because they can, because they are the king, the ruler. And then the next day you are summoned and asked, What have you done, while at the same time you're told that you have done something that should not be done? And this is said in front of the entire court, in front of everyone. You've done things that should not be done, that ought not to be done. This questions his integrity and honour and assumes that Abraham did this maliciously. 
Abraham assumes that because Abraham saw something bad or was sinned against, that because of that, he deems it necessary to lie and in the process condemn Abimelech and the whole area under his rule. And then to add insult to injury, this rebuke comes from a king who doesn't even know God. Abimelech isn't judging Abraham with a righteous and holy understanding of morality, the holy and righteous understanding of what is right and what is wrong. This is not God rebuking Abraham. No, Abimelech is rebuking Abraham whilst having a morality that was shaped by polytheism and pagan worship. Abimelech was a Philistine. Gerar was one of the Philistine cities. The Philistines have their god Dagon we see in 1 Samuel. This god with a fish head and a human body. Imagine being given a lecture in morality by someone who does not have the truth as their source. Being given a lecture in morality by someone who has child sacrifice and worships false gods. This has been the most humiliating thing, I think. In verse 11, we then see Abraham's response. He says, um, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. But every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Here we finally get Abraham's rationale for his actions. The first thing that we see is that he thought that God was not feared in this place. He saw them, he saw their worship, he saw that it was not the one true God. Because they don't fear God, they would then take Sarah and kill him. Abraham neglected the fact that God is everywhere. He neglected the fact that God is omniscient. I think that's the right omni. He's again acted in a manner of human fleshly thinking and not that that is in line with God. Abraham neglected the fact that God is always with him no matter where he sojourned or wandered. He would not have been able to run away from God. That is the first reason for his actions is because he thought that God wasn't there. But then he continues to try and justify his actions by saying that it wasn't really a lie. It wasn't really a lie. It's half true. She is my father's daughter, but not my mother's, not full siblings. This is something I think that we often try to do. We try to reduce how bad the sin is. When we sin and are caught in that and are being rebuked, we often try to reduce the severity of that sin. We try to justify our actions. But in doing so, we are denying accountability and denying responsibility. We are shifting the blame from ourselves and onto something or someone else. When, Abra when Adam was confronted about the apple, he immediately put the blame onto God and onto his wife in one sentence. In Genesis 12, it said, the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This pattern of shifting blame, of trying to reduce what you've done and your own responsibility for it is a pattern of sin that has been there since the beginning. Since the beginning of humanity sinning. 
Abraham knew that while he was being deceitful, he knew that he was being deceitful. He knew that although what he had said was partially true, it was not completely true. Warren Wearsby says this, a half-truth has just enough fact in it to be plausible but, and just enough deception to make it dangerous. A half-truth has just enough fact in it to be plausible and just enough deception to make it dangerous. Abraham, in telling these half-truths, acted faithfully, faithlessly to God and deceitfully to Abimelech. But God's grace is greater than these sins. So although this sin was wrong, Abraham did not lose his justification. God didn't abandon Abraham. He didn't need to be re-saved or re-justified. But in his sinning, he ruined his testimony outwardly. He did not portray himself as a prophet of God most high to the people that he was with. In these verses, we see that this deception also wasn't a one-time thing. We saw it back in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh in Egypt. But it also says wherever they went. So although these are the only two stories that we have of it in the Bible, there may well have been other instances of this happening. I think that this shows us a pattern or a habit of sin that has gone unaddressed for decades. You would have thought that, almost, that after almost losing his wife in Egypt, he would have repented and changed his way of thinking. He would have seen the sovereignty of God in a greater light. But this passage, however, shows us the exact opposite. He did the same before, exactly the same as before, but this time there was so much more on the line. When he went back to, when he was in Egypt, he hadn't been given a time frame for the promise of Isaac. There had been no indication of how long it would be until they had this son. But here he's been told, there is one year until you have this child. But he still gives up. He still gives her up to Abimelech. He still lets her go. He fails to recognize that God is greater than the circumstance in which he finds himself. When sin is allowed to grow, going unaddressed for a long time, then it eventually affects then eventually the effects of it will get out of our control. You cannot do damage control on it anymore. And we will need to face the consequences of it. Abraham being rebuked by Abimelech is the consequence of the action here, but it would have been so much worse if God hadn't stepped in. If God hadn't come to Abimelech in a dream and told him what was happening, the effects of this sin would have potentially been the lack of Fulfillment. It would have been Isaac not necessarily being completely legitimate. The consequences for Abraham's actions here are enormous once you start thinking about them. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. In the same way that Pharaoh gave Abraham all sorts of animals and servants for the sake of Sarah, so here we see that Abimelech gives Abraham all this wealth as well. We know that, Abim that Abraham was already a wealthy man who had a significant number of animals and servants even before this. But now his wealth only increases. Even though 
Abraham had acted deceitfully toward Abimelech and the people of Gerar, Abimelech still recognises that Abraham is a man of God and the person whom God has said needs to pray for him. And from this response, it seems as though Abimelech accepts at least partial responsibility for this thing that has happened. He doesn't just do what God has commanded him to do, but he does more. He gives Sarah back, but he also gives male and female servants. He gives sheep and oxen. He increases the wealth. He goes above and beyond the command of God here. And we'll see in the next verses why he did this. In verse 15, it says, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you have vindicated. As I referred throughout this passage to Genesis 12, there have been many similarities. Throughout it, we have seen time and again the way that God acted in a different manner, but Abraham acted in his habitually sinful way. But here we have a stark difference. At the end of chapter 12 and verse 20, it said, And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh had feared Abraham and everything to do with him, and for that reason he'd kicked him out of Egypt at the end of it. He gave him all this wealth and then said, Get out, be gone. I don't want to see you again. Here, however, though, Abimelech, although he had this bad experience of Abraham, recognises that he is a man of God and so allows him any of his lands to live in. He says, my land is yours, pick. Take your pick. Choose the best land if you want. Abimelech has had a different experience in relation to Abraham and God. And so he reacts differently. He then speaks to Sarah and we can see that he believes the story of Abraham about their lineage, that they are indeed related by their father when he says, I've given your brother. I've given these things to your brother. Silver I've given to your brother. You'll see that he gives a sizable sum to Abraham as a testimony to Sarah's virtue. It would have been evident to all who were there and all who heard it later that Abimelech had not touched her. The sin had not happened. While I was studying this, one of the commentators that I read said that this wasn't an extra gift on top of it, but merely a valuation of its worth. I disagree with that, though. So he's given them male and female servants and everything, all of these animals, all of this wealth, and then on top of that, he gives them a thousand pieces of silver to show that he had not committed this sin. It was a sign of repentance and innocence. Abimelech no longer sought them and he was proving that he had not acted against God. Both to Abraham and Sarah and to all those in the land, he had acted innocently. Verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves that they bore, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We finally get to see the second thing that God had told Abimelech to do, that he was commanded to do. He was told to have Abraham pray for him and all his people so that he might be saved from death. This prayer shows that Abraham is again intercessing for unsaved people. 
In his prayer, he is again fulfilling that role as prophet between man and God. And we see, although we see here that although the threat of death was not the only motivation for Abimelech, I'm sure it would have been enough, but we also see here that all of his wives and all of his servants had also stopped being able to reproduce. The queen, his concubines, they could not conceive during this whole episode. Infertility in these cultures was a cause of great shame and reproach. So God, for God to bring this upon the whole household of the king, it would have caused a great deal of reproach and shame to be directly associated, to be directly reflected onto the king, bringing shame on the whole land. We can also see that God here was in control. He gave the consequences to these people, both of immediate infertility, but also of potential death. If Abimelech did not do what God had commanded, then they would have died. And ultimately, God's will would have been done. He had promised the son to Abraham and Sarah. And so when it comes in, when someone comes in and tries to prevent that, even unknowingly, Abimelech didn't know, God steps in. Abimelech could either return Sarah and live or keep her for himself, at which point he would be killed. And she would have gone back to Abraham anyway. God's will would have happened, whatever Abimelech did. God is sovereign and his plans will stand. One little aside, just at the end here, that kept creeping into my mind though, is why did God say that Abimelech was a dead man and then not kill him? And for me, there are two answers to these questions that have satisfied me. The first is that God is saying it as a threat. It is an if-then statement. If Abimelech didn't give Sarah back, then God would kill him. And the second is this. Abimelech was already dead, but that is spiritually dead. When God says to him, you are a dead man, he's referring to his spiritual state and his eternity. Abimelech was not saved, and so was heading to hell, a place described in Revelation 21.8, uh, which says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a contrast with Abraham who was saved and alive. You then have Abimelech who was lost in his sin and so dead. Think for yourself about what those are. There's something to think about during the week. Um, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 says this. And this is about Christians now. And if you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this word, world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the de desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before we are saved, we are following Satan. That is the prince of the power of the air. Abimelech was not saved. He would have been following the prince of the power of the air and is so lost. On that note, let's get into the application. And there is only really one application I want for today. 
that is choose God. In this passage today, we've been confronted by the fact that Abraham, the man of faith, chose to do his things his own way instead of God's way. He didn't listen to God in this matter. And in the process, we see that Abimelech, the pagan king, chose to do what God had told him to do and chose to listen to God instead of his own desires. God gave us his son so that we're able to come into fellowship. Jesus died for you. In the midst of our sin and condemnation, God in his love gave us his son. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't matter how much good you do though. If you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't had faith in him, if you haven't been justified by that faith, justified by God through grace in faith, you will be condemned to hell. You'll be subjected to the second death as Abimelech was. That phrase in verse three, behold, you're a dead man, will be just as true of you as it was of him. Choose God over your own personal desires. Choose God over the world because it is dying and corrupting. Choose God over the sin in your life because there is grace and mercy waiting for you if you just reach out and grasp it. And once you have reached out and grasped it, as I'm sure many of us have, then let us continue to grow. Let us continue to be shaped by God and his word. Don't just believe on Sundays and then the rest of the week live a life like the world. Please give yourself over to God in every way. Let him be the guiding light in our lives. Don't be like Abraham when he tries to do things his own way. Be like him when he is trusting in the promise of God for 25 years. Be like him when he is waiting for that promised son. Be like him when he is willing to sacrifice his son because he is sure that God can save him. Follow God and see that he will provide and care for you. Don't worry about what the world will think. They already hate you. Just trust that God is there. Trust in him and let him be the person whom you are serving in everything that you do. I'll just finish with this last little verse from a hymn, this great hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for Abraham. I thank you that he is a man of faith. I thank you that he was justified by faith and is an example for us, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, as we go home, Lord, that we would be guided by you, Lord, that we would look to you for wisdom and for guidance, Lord that we would seek to serve you before anything or anyone else, Lord. Lord, I pray this week that you would help us to live as Christians, that you'd help us to be sanctified by you, that you'd help us to be in the word, Lord, that you'd help us to flee from sin, Lord. Lord I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.